Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today, anthropology professor Vivek Vedkatraman says we need to rethink human origins because we're pretty complicated. UBC's Dr. Corey Nislow talks about his two science experiments on board the Artemis test flight in space right now. Victoria Community Social Planning Council director Diana Gibson isn't terribly pleased about Victoria now being our most expensive city and political scientist Hamish Telford offers his ideas on what BC's new Premier David Eby's top priorities should be. So, let's get started. Here's a conversation I've been looking forward to having since I learned I was going to have the opportunity to sit in today. Our guest, our next guest, describes himself as an evolutionary anthropologist and hunter-gatherer specialist. He is the author of a piece called The Origins of Human Society Are More Complex Than We Thought. Our guest is Vivek Venkatraman, who is a professor of anthropology and archaeology at the University of Calgary. Professor Venkatraman, Vivek, good morning and welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us. This is a, a complete departure from the politics and regular uh, stuff that we tackle uh, on this program uh, on, a, on a weekend basis. This is a nice departure. Talk to us a little bit about why uh, this is important in 2022 to be more aware of where we came from. Yeah, as an anthropologist, I think that prehistory is crucial for understanding uh where we came from and who we are today and and therefore how how flexible our, say, political systems and our social lives uh, can be. Um, So, you know, we're living in a time right now where there's a lot of uh, issues in the world, climate change, um, ineffectual political systems. And so we want to understand where humans came from so we can understand the kinds of solutions that we can come up with in the future. Do to, to, you mentioned climate change? Uh, humanity has been dealing with climate change in one form or another since you began studying this and realized how far back we go. I think climate change. Would you agree, Vivek, that it has been a human reality since humanity has been around? Well, well it absolutely has been, and climate change has accounted for many of the big changes we saw throughout. Uh, human evolution. It likely pushed, uh, pushed us to invent tools and ways of coping in our environments um, in the past. And so humans were very clever with, with uh, dealing with climate change in the past. Um, of course, we never affected our ecosystems to the extent that, that we are today. So, so this is a little bit different and probably a, a thornier issue to solve, which makes it all the more uh, important. Absolutely. Again, especially context matters. And that's one thing I find uh, some of the more hysterical edges of the climate change presentation. uh, 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 They lack uh, context completely. Hysteria dominates to the point where they become annoying. Uh, Let's talk a little bit Mm -hmm. about the uh, the what you call uh, uh, the institutional cage we've created for ourselves. We humans have created a a history for ourselves, uh, starting with the hunter gatherers, your area of special living in a nomadic lifestyle, uh, later on evolving to farming and domestication of animals, and then progressing to more complex societies, which have eventually evolved into the modern nation state. That's sort of the traditional human understanding of our origins. You're suggesting in your piece at theconversation.com that that's a, a little too simplistic. We're a little more complicated than that. 
Yeah, I think what prehistory is is showing us, you know, we've seen a lot of discoveries over the past 20 or 30 years that shows us that, uh, in particular, the shift to farming, which is thought to have led to a lot of important changes in human human society, um, it wasn't as immediate as we as we uh, typically think of it. So, with farming, once we settled down from a nomadic lifestyle, this is when our health got worse as we ate uh, foods that were less uh, balanced in, in micronutrients. Hmm, interesting. Um, yeah, and uh, this is when institutional uh, hierarchy was thought to have arisen, and so lots of different kinds of inequalities are, are, are thought to have arose with this. But we now know that um, before 10,000 years ago, humans were already living in societies that we might call uh, more complex, more complicated. They were, they were sedentary. So we can look at places like um, southern France, uh, where during the Ice Age people were making cave paintings and um, living in rather dense societies or places like uh, Gobekli Tepe, which is a site in Turkey where hunter-gatherers were actually uh, hauling large megalith stones to a, to a central location where they built this structure, probably served as some kind of early uh, temple. And this is something we thought before that hunter-gatherers couldn't do. So we now know uh, with these examples that even hunter-gatherers that were in these kind of nomadic bands could actually come together from time to time and create these kinds of structures and have more complex political lives. Right. So it just makes the, the picture a little bit more uh, complicated. Right. I mean, at the same time, though, it would also suggest a, a, a greater degree of connectivity, Vivek, that, uh, you know, we, it's not just a, a, a collection of random uh, nomadic peoples, uh, there there is more connectivity between them, not the kind of connectivity we have now, but they knew each other, and there was some some interaction between those groups. Yes, exactly. And we now know that going back probably at least 100, maybe 150,000 years ago, that people were engaging in long-distance trade networks. So they definitely had social networks like we like we have today, sort of, except, uh, you know, they had to travel by foot and so on. Um, but nevertheless, they weren't just these isolated bands of people. They were part of kind of a, a broader society. I wanted to ask you about tribalism, because, of course, here we are in 2022 and we're talking about mm-hmm. uh, divisive politics and tribal attitudes and Russia and Ukraine and on and on and on it goes. And we relatively in, in many conversations, we we hear people falling back. We're regressing back to our our days as hunter gatherers. We're all tribal. We need to be more global in our outlook, et cetera, et cetera. What about this tribal, this very human tribal tendency as you as you've studied it? Well, that's a really interesting question. There's a lot of controversy about this. Uh, We know that hunter-gatherers engage in um, what we might call warfare. It it occurs what we call uh, below the military horizon, so people aren't uh, bossing each other around. There's no generals and so on. But nevertheless, throughout our history, um, the the, the tribe was kind of an important level, and we were very um, biased toward our in-group members versus our our out-group members. Um, but today things are things are a lot more complicated, and so it can be kind of difficult to, uh, to to say much about what's going on currently in Ukraine. Uh, 
through the lens of <laughs> of what happened in the past. Okay, but again, it was just uh, I, I, I suppose what you've done is uh, stimulate us to start thinking perhaps a little outside the box that we completely have grown up understanding ourselves in terms of our origin. You're suggesting in the title of the piece for crying out loud is the origins of human society are more complex than we thought, and, and it, it's it's a fascinating piece. Boil it down for us, Vivek. We're almost out of time. And in terms of because uh, I found it quite stimulating. Uh, what have what What's the biggest finding that you've come across that just not necessarily negates or cancels out our understanding of, of our origins, but rather expands it enormously? Yeah, so I think uh, what, what, the, what the evidence is now showing us is that it's not like we were just running around in nomadic bands for uh, 300,000 years, yeah. and then we switched to farming, and then now we're, we're stuck in... Uh, society, uh, as we talked about with the institutional cages, I think what it shows us is that humans have always been very diverse and complicated throughout our histories. We populated the world in uh, essentially a geological eye blink. Uh, we successfully colonized all sorts of new habitats, and we're a very adaptable uh, species. So we need to keep this in mind moving forward that there's not simply one way to live or to organize our political lives. Um, there's actually many ways to do it, and we can feel free to be uh, creative to do that in the future. Indeed, and given the fact that, as it turns out, we've been experimenting with the said formats for uh, successful organization of societies for much longer than we actually think about. Uh, a fascinating piece. I'm grateful that you got up and joined us on, on, a, on a weekend morning, Vivek, because uh, I found it incredibly stimulating, and I hope a lot of our listeners will take a few moments to pop over to theconversation.com and check it out for themselves. Uh, thanks for your time. Good to speak to you today. Thanks for having me. Take care. It was a nail-biter, but NASA finally got the first rocket in its Artemis mission off the ground just a few days ago down there at Cape Canaveral, Florida. In our lifetime, we've had the good fortune to witness how many dozen space launches. I tell you, it just never, ever gets old or boring, ever, does it? Uh, this one, by the way, featured uh, the space launch system. The rocket itself is the space agency's most powerful rocket ever built. And on top of it, of course, the Orion spacecraft which one day will ferry astronauts to and from the moon. The last time we were there, by the way, December 1972. This current mission is an uncrewed mission. The only passengers, three mannequins on board. But there are lots of experiments, uh, experiments rather, including a, a vest on a test that will uh, protect astronauts from space radiation and other science experiments involved as well. One of those contributing to these science experiments on board the, uh, are the rocket and currently circling the Earth is Dr. Corey Nislow from the Pharmaceutical Sciences Department at UBC. Dr. Nislow joins us right now. Corey, good morning, sir. Welcome to the program. Uh, good morning, Sterling. Great, uh, great to be here. Thank well, it's you. good to have you with us. Tell us, uh, first of all, your impressions of the launch. Uh, I never get tired of them. I love them. And uh, this one, featuring the largest rocket ever built, was quite a show. It was pretty awesome. Night launches, um, in my opinion, are, are the most dramatic. And, and, you know, we had some, some last-minute um, uh, uh, nail-biters uh, for this launch with uh, the red team going out to tighten some, uh, some bolts that had come loose. Yes. Uh, and so uh, I uh, 
once it cleared what they call max Q after about a minute and a half, I was elated. And uh, that means now tell us what you've got. Uh, your personal involvement with this, Dr. Nislow, is uh, science based, of course. And uh, you, you've, you've sent something up. What have you done? Well, we've sent up, I, I like to think of it as, as two pretty large communities um, uh, um, of about 6,000 to 10,000 members each. We sent one experiment uh, uh, has 6,000 different yeast mutants, each very specifically engineered to have a single mutation. Mm. Um, and um, in a very complementary experiment, we sent up 10,000 different algae uh, uh, that all each also have uh, very well-characterized mutations. And we studied these mutations on the ground for about 20 years. And so we, and you know, as scientists, the, the way we approach um, um, how to understand how, how a gene or anything in the cell works is you disrupt it or, or knock it out. Sure. And so we have, we have a, um, a, a database of several thousand different experiments in different environments telling us how these genes operate, but we don't, we, we have a missing environment. We've been, we've uh, taken these samples to the space station, but we've never taken them out of lower earth orbit where we're going to have to go to get to the moon and sure. Mars and beyond. So now uh, that's the, that's the missing link in this long chain of research that you've conducted using the yeast and algae cultures. So this would be, this would be the, the final link in terms of determining what, how these cultures evolve and how we can mutate them to our advantage? Well, that's, yeah, that's always the question. Why are you doing this? So uh, what, what the, specifically, um, we've never had the opportunity to uh, expose our, our samples to high levels of cosmic radiation uh-huh. for an extended period of time. We can model that on the ground, and we have with our collaborators. But, um, you know, when you're on the uh, International Space Station, you're protected from the, um, the, the solar wind that contains so much cosmic radiation. Well, we're no longer going to be so well protected after you get about 60,000 kilometers above the surface of the Earth. So when these samples come back, we're going to be able to very specifically ask which genes were most important for surviving that bombardment of cosmic radiation. Ah, and I, I, I noted briefly in my opening remarks, Dr. Nislow, that uh, one, it's an uns, uncrewed mission, but one of the experiments being undertaken is this testing of the vest that will pr- yep. protect real astronauts from space radiation in future trips. The, and so, in fact, the vest test is linked yep. to the algae and uh, and the yeast as well because it's all about radiation and its effects on all sorts of organisms, right? Exactly right. And it's going to take, um, you know how we always say, it's going to take more than one magic bullet. It's going to take a multiple multiple approaches to make sure we know how to protect the crew and the plants and the animals that are going to be aboard future missions. Um, and also, I'd be remiss to, to um, not to mention that there's Earth, Earth-based uh, advantages to uh, understanding radiation effects as well. When you go in for radiation therapy, 
um, it's getting more and more precise sure. um, and better, but there's still collateral damage. And so we want, um, the more we learn about how cells respond to radiation, the better equipped we are to go into our arsenal of drugs and other treatments to potentially help cells deal and, and repair. Dr. Nisto, if humans have been to the moon, and the last time we were there was uh, December 1972, it's yeah. been a while, but did we have any, were we, were we able to identify any negative effects of space radiation on those humans who actually did go to the moon and who weren't wearing protective vests, they were wearing space suits, suits rather, but did we, have we noted any negative effects of, of radiation in space? No, and that's a great question. And the two, the, there are many reasons why, but the big ones for us are we didn't have the tools to go in and look at the single-letter DNA changes that may have occurred. Uh-huh. And other, the other ex- possible explanation is that the missions were relatively short. Um, and here's, here's a key um, thing that gets me really excited. Um, we are not going to be sending humans to the moon for months or years yet. Right. But, but we will eventually. And our yeast go through a generation every 90 minutes. So it's the equivalent of 400 person years uh, on this mission. And so whatever we learn in yeast, and because yeast shares so much gene function with humans, mm. we can ex- extrapolate our yeast findings to long-term, multi-generational effects on people. A crash course in, in, yes. in uh, long-term effects, then. Well, hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps a bad choice of words when we're talking about <laughs> spacecraft, but really, a really quite intensely condensed survey, isn't it? Exactly. And the, the, another wonderful thing is these samples come back, and so they're going to be archived here in Vancouver so that after I retire... Um, um, and my students go on to be there to get their own positions. They'll be able to take these samples, just like we're still studying lunar rocks, and be able to continue to study the long, long-term effects of these exposures. Interesting stuff, Doctor Nissel. A pleasure to have you on the program this morning, sir. It gets uh, gets a person even more excited about what's going on up there. And I, I, I frankly love it, and and I love your enthusiasm to the point where I'm looking forward to having this conversation as we learn more going forward. Can we uh, can we make that arrangement now here in front of lots it, of witnesses? It, it's, a, it's a date. It's a date. Thank you so much. Victoria has surpassed Vancouver as British Columbia's most expensive city, according to the latest calculation of living wages in the province. This is an annual report. It's put out by the folks at the nonprofit Living Wage for Families BC and the Community Social Planning Council. And the report says the living wage in Greater Victoria increased by 20% just this year. Here to talk more about it is the Executive Director of the Community Social Planning Council. A pleasure to say good morning and welcome to Diana Gibson, joining us from Victoria. Hi, Diana. Hi, how are you doing? I'm great, thanks. Uh, this is disturbing, I suppose, for folks in, in the Metro Victoria area to find out that uh, it, it's now official. You're more expensive Vancouver than Vancouver, rather, Diana, but I doubt that anyone in the area is too surprised. Yeah, I mean, we definitely know there's a bit of a premium on the island. Certainly anybody who goes to the grocery store, um, you know, or looks for housing here really knows 
Um, But I guess it's the housing market that's really changed from Victoria to Vancouver. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about that. Was that the the sort of the deal breaker that that made the big switch from uh, Vancouver in first place to now second and Victoria tops the list? Yeah, I think so. I mean, housing is definitely the biggest cost for households. So out of the budget that so uh, uh, although housing didn't increase as fast as food because it's the biggest part of the budget it's the overall biggest increase but you know the place where we did see the biggest jump up is in food okay so let's talk to uh, about the minimum hourly wage component to the report because this is one of the major determining factors diana that made uh, victoria top vancouver so what what are the numbers here what what is what is the minimum amount of money based on an hourly wage that uh, you need to make to survive successfully in greater victoria these days well it's just Shy of of, of twenty four fifty, so twenty four forty nine an hour is what an individual needs, and this is somebody we're, we're assuming it's somebody who's in a household of two earners. So each person needs to earn that. Wow! If they have two two kids in the house, um, so that that's not you know that's not a, a, a household earning income. That's like a person with two earners in the household that need to be earning each of them uh, twenty four forty nine each per hour to be able to have a dignified income. And this isn't like you know, they're not going to be planning trips to the Bahamas sure. or anything. This is a basic dignified income. So it does allow them to not have to choose between paying their different bills at the end of the month. It does allow them cell phones with data because we know that in order to have a job or find a job these days, you have to have that connectivity. So it does have some connectivity, some data. It has, um, in, in rural houses, it has a vehicle um, it, and it has um, some savings, school supplies and costs, you know, a bunch of basic things. So that it can uh, allow a decent, basic living for somebody in a household with kids. So what you're suggesting is just a whisker under 50 bucks an hour combined with the two working parents uh, generating said yeah. money. That's what it's going to cost to live successfully, not grandly or in fine style, but just to live comfortably in Greater Victoria. The household has to be generating approximately 50 bucks an hour in income. Uh, the other part that I wanted to ask you about, Diana, is the increase in wages, because last year the average wage was not 24.49 that you suggested is now. It was around twenty dollars and fifty cents, almost four dollars lower than it is yeah. now. What's the big what one year? That's a huge turnaround. Yeah, and that's where it's housing and and um, and cost of living around food and, and expenses uh, that have driven that up. And it's it's much more than inflation. Like that twenty percent increase, inflation was you know closer to, to to between six and eight, depending on the month last year. And so that increase is because. And we're seeing higher cost escalation in basic needs. And this, you know, if you average the cost of living across a whole bunch of goods and services, including non-urgent, non-priority stuff, it'll be more like the cost of living, you know, 6 to 8%. But if you look at basic essential goods, that's where we're seeing it's actually a 20% increase. So this tells us that lower income households are really seeing that cost increase on their basic needs at a higher rate than inflation. Indeed we are. And, of course, it it, 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 it shakes down, too, on a local level, Diana, to uh, you know, reports that we're seeing from all sorts of retail surveys and such that suggest, for example, something as simple as the projected amount of spending individuals are going to do this year over Christmas is considerably mm-hmm. lower than previous years. Not welcome news for those in the retail sector, particularly small businesses, even though people who are saying they're going to spend less 
are going to try and focus on helping out small businesses where possible. But again, uh, if people are pulling in their horns, uh, this, yeah. is, this, this would suggest that it's going to become even more expensive. Yes. And this is, you know, this is the thing where particularly our living wage certified employers are really feeling the squeeze because they've got the same supply chain issues that the households are being hit by. Yep. So the costs are going up for those small local businesses that are trying to be certified living wage employers. And then they now have to do this big jump in, in wages, which is huge for a small local business. Um, and they're seeing, going to see customers pulling back. And all of those are the, you know, the businesses, most of the ones that are living wage employers are things like tourism, retail. They're the ones that were hardest hit by the pandemic, too. So they're still in recovery from the pandemic. And now they've got this supply chain cost, and then they've got the living wage jump, and then they're going to have customers pulling back. So definitely that's something that we're really concerned about with our living wage employers. We were certainly happy to see the government make that announcement the other day on hydro and a cost of living help for households. Um, Certainly um, some bits and pieces that are starting to put some help where it's needed. Yeah, and and the premier, our premier-elect, I suppose, at the mm-hmm. time, Mr. Eby, who's going to make a public safety announcement later today, too, and I'm sure that you'll be interested in hearing that. I know I am. Uh, but yeah, for sure. But he talked about, and he said, look, it's not, the, it's not the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I'm paraphrasing. It's not going to, yeah. it's not the magic bullet that's going to make everything no. better for everybody. However, um, the, uh, it, it's, it's a beginning. It's a recognition that some people are in really tough times. Yeah, and it, you know they did a preview in September. They announced an uh, increase in the carbon tax credit to get money into the hands of lower-income households. They did the childcare um, and and a one-time BC family benefit. So they're benefits. So they're doing a bunch of different pieces. I mean, certainly the living wage tells us that we need more, and the area where we really need the government to do more is on housing because that's what's driving up costs mostly is the high cost of access to housing particularly rental housing and that's in our in our calculations it was the jump in rental housing costs that really changed those numbers so that's where the government needs to do more purpose built nonprofit rental housing that's going to be controlled prices that people can have access to in low income. Aha. Uh-huh. Now, you're, you're, you're kind of on our wavelength this morning, Diana, because there you are talking about uh, some of the priorities you feel uh, the EB government, which officially begins work tomorrow morning, uh, should have. Our question of the day uh, for our buzz lines is, what should David EB's first priorities be? And yeah. uh, you're talking about now affordable housing. Is that number one on your list? Uh, based on, on the perspective you're providing us this morning? It is. You know, we saw when the government invested in child care in 2019, the living wage actually went down, which is great because workers and employers were able to have that cost of living covered without having to have it, co- it come, come over to consumers and, and prices for small businesses. So the government invested in child care and the cost of living uh, went down mm. and the living wage, living wage actually went down. So the, the government can do that with the right plate rate investment in the right places. And that's where housing is going to be that priority area to get the cost of living to go back down again and help employers and workers. It's going to be getting access to adequate purpose built public investment in housing. All right. So as far as your group, uh, the uh, Community Planning Council, uh, that's that uh, is collectively your wish list for the EB government that starts and ends with affordable housing. It is. Yep. Interesting stuff. We appreciate your taking some time to join us this morning, Diana. It's it's interesting uh, findings. But I suppose if you're living in Victoria, it's not welcome news on a chilly Sunday morning to know that, oh, gosh, lucky us. We're now the most expensive city in B.C., which typically translates as the most expensive city in the whole blinking country, too, doesn't it?
It does. We're we're closing in. Certainly, I think we might be higher than Toronto on the living wage this year, too. So it's a dubious award to win for sure. All right, Diana, thank you for this. We appreciate your time and the facts that you present and put on the table for us today. Thank you. It is uh, time to take a look. Our question of the day, by the way, at uh, uh, 604-331-BUZZ is what do you think should be David Eby's first priorities? He officially takes uh, job the job over uh, first thing tomorrow morning. He's already done a couple of things after being sworn in the other day. He announced a one-time $100 cost of living credit for hydro customers and the new BC affordability credit. This afternoon, Mr. Eby is expected to make some kind of uh, public safety announcement. Uh, so he's already working and tomorrow morning it's official. So let's talk to Hamish Telford from the University of the Fraser Valley Political Science Department and get his response to our question of the day. Uh, Professor Telford, Hamish, good morning, sir, and welcome to the show. Yes, good morning, Sterling. It's good to have you with us. What do you think Mr. Eby's top priorities should be at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning? Well, I could probably list the top 10 things. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm absolutely sure what the number one thing is. He has identified really two things, I guess, housing and, and public safety. Right. Um, and uh, today he's going to announce on public safety. So maybe that is, in fact, his first priority. Although on Friday, just after sworn in, sworn in as you just mentioned, he had some cost of living announcements. Obviously, those were goodies that John Horgan saved up for him so that he would have some good news to announce on the day that he was sworn in. We also heard moments ago from the folks at the Community Social Planning Council in Victoria in the person of their executive director, Diana Gibson, talking about the the dubious honor of being now the most expensive city in B.C. by their calculation, taking over from Vancouver. But she said, Hamish, that their number one priority as a group and individually was affordable housing. Uh, That was was just there's a huge gap between that and everything else on their list. Is your list structured that way, too? Yes, and I think housing has, I think there's two ends of the housing market. Really, there are the people who are struggling to buy houses, um, buy what are now very expensive houses anywhere in the lower mainland or southern Vancouver Island. Yep. And at the other end, uh, we have people who can't have, don't have any sort of home and who are living on the streets. Uh, and, and really, the, the bottom end is, is, to me, the most pressing issue. There are just too many people living on our streets um, all over British Columbia. And, and David Eby, of course, has, has experience working in the downtown east side. Right. He is very familiar uh, with that neighborhood anyway. Uh, and I think he is quite determined to, to work on that. And hopefully we will see improvements in, in not too long a time. Well, he's on the record as saying, I don't support uh, the concept of tent cities. Uh, and uh, But at the same time, recognizing the need for some kind of practical solutions to the homeless situation, which continues to grow. Uh, so what does, what sort of short list of possibilities does he have realistically that he can do, for example, first thing tomorrow morning? Yes, um, tent cities have become a huge problem, and it, it might be that what we need in the very short term are sort of safer tent cities, um, not people putting up their own little pup tents, but you know, proper tents erected for people in a, in a good location where other services are available. Mm-hmm. Short of that... Um, you know, I think the only thing we can do um, to get people off the streets immediately by, say, Tuesday morning is rent them hotel spaces. Um, and uh, many of the SRO's hotels are full yes. and or condemned. 
Um, so then we're looking at a, at a more expensive level of, of, of putting up people up. Um, maybe DVD has that in mind. We, we will see. Of course, it takes much longer to, to build any kind of permanent homes, even if it's modular homes. That takes many months, if not longer. Uh, you've got to find the location, sure. put the structures together, and so on and so forth. So in the very short term, putting people up in hotels is really the only option. Professor Telford, uh, Ken Sim got elected mayor of Vancouver recently. Brenda Locke in Surrey and many other municipal uh, councils were changed quite recently because the people who became successful uh, uh, mayors and councillors uh, were keenly tuned in to public sentiments regarding public safety. And uh, you know, you've noted already that Mr. Eby is going to make some kind of public safety announcement later today. Uh, it, this is critical for people in Metro Vancouver and, and Victoria and elsewhere. Uh, it matters so much that they were able to uh, organize a municipal government that comes with a majority and the ability to do something. And they're expecting the same from Victoria. What can Mr. Eby do, in again, on a short-term basis, to address at least and make us aware of his uh, um, sense of responsibility with respect to public safety. The real challenge with public safety, as with the housing, but I think even more so with public safety, is that it's beyond the capacity of any one city to deal with. Mm -hmm. Um, It is going to require all three levels of government to pull together in the same direction to address this issue because we've got so many components to the story. It's a housing issue. It's a mental health issue. It's a drug issue. Um, that involves housing at the, at the municipal level. Health issues are the responsibility of provinces, and when we're in the realm of criminal law, that's federal. So we need all three orders of government. We're starting to see that come together, uh, but it's perhaps not sufficiently coordinated and hasn't gone far enough uh, to provide sort of relief at the street level yet. So uh, what can Mr. Eby do? Uh, again, if we can get people off the streets, if he puts people up in hotels, that might start. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then they're going to, you just can't put them up in a hotel and expect everything to be solved. Uh, there are all the other supports that they're going to need, the mental health supports, the, the physical health supports, uh, as well as, as treatment for, for drug issues that they are experiencing. Um, so it's a huge problem, but all three orders of government have to work together to get this solved. Yeah, you're quite right, because of course, and, and, and one of the big concerns in Chem Sim and the AB BC folks here in Vancouver really rode that horse all the way to the finish line. This whole notion of catch and release that seems to be so prevalent in BC. Uh, the, the Attorney General of British Columbia, the Premier of British Columbia, can't do anything about it. You need the Federal Minister of Justice to get together with the prosecutors and all the rest of that and really readjust the notion of catch and release that, that criminals, uh, basically career criminals, are released back into the community within hours of being apprehended to reoffend. And as long as that is permiss- permissible and is, is the order of the day, not much is going to move forward, don't you think? That's true, but if we if we don't do catch and release, we put them in holding cells until their trials are are done. They get no treatment or rehabilitation there, uh, and then they may just be sentenced to time served and then released back in the street. We might just delay that problem. <laughs> That's true. Uh, push it down the road, kick the can down the road a few months. Um, so again, it's it's we need a more holistic solution to it uh, than simply just locking people up. 
And I get the feeling that Mr. Eby is up to the task, at least in his in his early days as premier with all that youthful energy and experience he already has as a politician. You get the feeling he's willing to give it a good try. Absolutely. He's very determined. Um, I think he has has, you know, he's a younger man than, than John Horgan should come at this with with more energy. Um, I'm very interested to see what sort of cabinet changes he makes um, next month. Um, as, and I'm, I'm not expecting huge changes right now because we're sort of midstream, but maybe next summer. Right. Does he bring in a younger team uh, that might have more energy to tackle some of these, these, um, these problems? Um, the, one, the one sort of caution is that uh, he'll be very different than John Horgan. John Horgan relied, I think, a lot on intuition and instinct. David Eby is much more of a thinker. Right. Um, I just hope he doesn't overthink these problems uh, because you can spend a, an awful lot of time thinking about it and not acting. So, so hopefully we will see action. Indeed, and it could be as soon as this afternoon. Hamish Telfer, good to have you on the show this morning, sir. We appreciate it very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.